0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called the stock market. And don't look now, but things may actually be getting better. Holly Fool Money starts now.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The
2: best thing they-
0: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Good to see you both. Hey, Chris. Hey, hey. we got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Nell Minow is our guest. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the market in general. For the second week in a row, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ were poised to finish higher. Andy, it seems like the narrative for investors is starting to shift to the positive. You go back a month, six weeks, a lot of fear out there. Now, part of what we're hearing from members at The Motley Fool, part of what I'm seeing out there in the financial media seems to be a lot more investors taking the attitude of, it seems like we've weathered the worst of the storm that we saw earlier in the year, and now we're looking for stocks to buy.
3: You know, Chris, I I think actually it's it's the individual investor actually weathered it quite well if you look at some of the the fund flow data and look at some of the trading activity, individual investors were actually in there. And if they weren't buying, they were they were kind of hanging out there. I think it was mostly institutions that were really um, jumping the gun and looking to, to kind of, uh, as they often are, trying to time the ins and outs. And, and they got out um, when the the news was was really uh, pessimistic around the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and some of the inflation numbers. And And now with the Federal Reserve's announcement that they are going to increase the interest rates by a quarter, Quarter basis point, uh, not a fifty base in, basis in uh, increase that was perhaps feared a little bit. Uh, also, understanding that we're in a while, while we do have some of the very strengths, strains strains of, of Omicron creeping out there, the, the the COVID situation has really we've passed the two year mark now since when the pandemic really started. And there's just a, a little bit more optimism, I think, you're seeing in the markets, and that's reflecting in in the stock price. But, but I, but I think the individual investor out there, to to credit to all of those who are individual investors, I think mostly we were we were holding the course, and I think it was a lot of institutions that were jumping around, and now they're looking at the U.S. market, Chris, and saying, "Listen, look at global markets." they're really in even more disarray than what's in the U.S. market. And we saw valuations come back down in the U.S. market in stocks is a place to be. And finally, Chris, because we know bonds is not really the place to be, although bonds are far less volatile than U.S. stocks. Uh, with interest rates increasing, the value of those bonds uh, is going to be a really tough, um, tough sled for the, for the rest of the year. So I think looking at the U.S. stocks, they look to be the most reasonably uh, valued with the, with the drop this year.
0: Let's get to some of the companies that are making news this week. Spotify has reached an agreement with Google that says an updated version of Spotify's app will allow users to pay Spotify directly for a subscription. It's a big concession from the Google Play Store, and the news sent shares of Spotify higher. And Jason, a nice ripple effect as well for companies like Match Group and Bumble.
2: Yeah, this this really does feel like the big platform operators are starting to maybe try to see around that corner, so to speak, regarding their stranglehold. Uh, on their respective app stores, and, and, and sort of showing a willingness to, to work together, because maybe they see that sort of where things are headed anyway. Uh, developers like Spotify have just you know, they complained for years that you have Google Play, Apple's app store. They don't allow direct payments; uh, they require those payments to go through those app stores. They take a hefty processing fee from it all. Um, it, it really. For the developers, it seems to be all in the name of choice, right? And and I'm sure there's probably a little financial incentive there as well, Chris. So let's not let's not uh, just just think Spotify is doing this out of the goodness of its heart, but but certainly giving consumers more choice, uh, giving Spotify a little bit more in the way of control over their app experience and data of what their users are actually doing. Uh, they, they've they've certainly been been advocating for for this for a long time. So we don't really have an idea. As far as the commission that it will pay to Google as a part of this test but but they'll clearly be paying something, and again, it's worth noting this is a test it's going to roll out slowly um, ultimately though, I think they'll glean enough from it to to kind of help this ball keep moving in this direction.
0: do you think this puts pressure on Apple's app store?
2: I, I think it's, it it certainly keeps the conversation going, right? I mean, I, I think it I think it does. I mean, it, you need just more and more developers to keep on pushing uh, this narrative, and, and over time, I think that could that could ultimately um, have an impact on a company like Apple. But but that remains to be seen.
0: Uber is a business that was born out of the idea that it's difficult to hail a taxi which is why heads were being scratched on Thursday when Uber announced it has reached an agreement to list every taxi in New York City on its app. Andy, is this a smart move or a desperate move? Because I honestly can't tell.
3: You know, Chris, I guess if you can't beat them, join them or maybe partner with them. You know, actually, Uber has not been shy about their interest in building out more taxi relationships. Uh, Uber taxi exists in 27 countries. They, they have a goal to get all of the taxis around the globe onto the wrap at some point. Uber already has 400 million in taxi bookings last year, and sees that growth. They announced in the last investor day going up to you know as much as three billion in 2024. So, um, considering New York taxis is the the biggest market, if not in the certainly in the US, if not here in the in in the world, um, putting the partnering with the with the taxis and putting them onto the app, it's a it's a continuing push. I think. To make the Uber app one of those super apps. If you look at what they have already, it's ride and food, vaccine, reservations, Chris, rentals, groceries. They, a real quest to make that, that app really one of those super apps. This will help ease some of the driver's shortage, although Uber did say that their New York City drivers are back up to the, the highest levels since the pandemic. Um, there's just this need to be able to kind of partner and look at markets that are really key. New York being one of them, um, and just the the supply shortage of of drivers overall, and the demand to be able to continue to to, to drive their business in a way that is that is healthy for um, not just uh, their their clients who need. I mean, I, I'm actually kind of excited about this because it puts it all one spot when I am back in New York, as opposed to using the the Curb Mobility or the Arrow app. You can actually just use the Uber app. Lyft has not announced that they're doing this yet, so so I think overall it's a pretty good move by Uber, Chris.
0: Can we get some sort of universal parking app as well? Because <laughs> oh, I, I I was up in Boston earlier this week and uh, went to park somewhere, and I thought, oh, wait, do I have to download a whole new app just so I can park? And uh, oh, So I, I, I did what uh, I think is the responsible thing. I just parked it legally. <laughs> this week, after six years, Warren Buffett finally found a business he wanted to buy at a price that he liked. Berkshire Hathaway is buying insurance company Allegheny for just over $11.5 billion. It is an all-cash deal, and Jason Berkshire made it very clear in the announcement, Yes, even though we have all this cash on the balance sheet, we are not overpaying. This is a fair price.
2: no it, you're right. It is a fair price, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, this is this is to my mind it's a very safe acquisition. It fits very nicely with Berkshire's overall business. It's not one that really lights the world on fire right It's not that elephant gun acquisition, but if you take Buffett at his word and I mean I don't see why we wouldn't uh, he's he's acquired a business and a leadership team that he's he's admired for a while and and if you look at the connection, there's the CEO of Allegheny Joseph. Brandon actually led General Reinsurance from 2001 to 2008, um, and, and was considered a possible Buffett successor at one point. Buffett describes him as a longtime friend, so it, it's it's it it makes sense from that perspective. And and Allegheny is geared mostly towards reinsurance uh, of of all of their premiums written in in 2021. 75% of that was dedicated to reinsurance, 25% to insurance. Um, And in regard to the valuation for a company that historically has traded around one-time book value or in that range, he's getting this company for 1.25 times book value. So a little bit of a premium there, certainly a fair price, and and I'm sure they'll do very well as a member of the, the Berkshire family.
0: Any indication of whether they're going to rebrand it under the Berkshire name? Because they've done that with some of the businesses in their portfolio, although um, maybe Allegheny's got a strong enough brand that they just keep it on their own.
2: My understanding is that they're going to be able to operate as they always have been, just under the Berkshire Hathaway umbrella. Um, but but you never know, there's a lot of value in that, in that Berkshire brand as well, so maybe that changes.
0: Is Apple about to get into a new line of business? We'll discuss that right after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Don't
2: the whole bunch
0: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Bloomberg News is reporting that Apple is working on a subscription service ...that would allow people to buy iPhones and other hardware products for a monthly fee. The project is reportedly still in development and has yet to be confirmed by Apple itself... But Andy, for the sake of this conversation, uh, let's go with this. I'm an Apple shareholder. Should I be excited about this?
3: Well, I think, Chris, if you think about your iPhones, many Apple devices are probably the most used device we carry around with us or use every day. I mean, far more than probably our cable subscription or our Netflix subscription. So when you think about trying to make the iPhone, which is fairly expensive, more accessible, and by the way, it could be iPhone, it could also be other Apple hardware products, and the real um, determination for Apple to be able to continue to drive, drive their services business, um, which has been so successful—the things like you know um, music, Apple TV Plus, Apple Fitness, news, those kinds of subscription offerings—it kind of makes sense that Apple is starting to think about this just because of, of different ways to make more and more people um, accessible to, to the iPhone. So. Chris, I'm kind of thinking it's like a maybe like an like auto leasing, or maybe like even like renting your 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 modem or your router from Comcast. If you do that, they're still still trying to figure out what this looks like. It wouldn't be just a payment plan spread out 24 months, but but with a monthly fee for access to, to the hardware. Um, considering that iPhone is much more is more than half of Apple sales, again, to be able to continue continue to make them more accessible, I think it makes sense. It also ties it together, would tie it together, I guess, with the Apple ID, your Apple ID. So so it would all be in one spot. So you can see it all just like you see all of your other like if your Apple Care, or Apple One subscriptions. And so just the, the the interest to be able to continue to um, drive their their subscription business, which is been a, a growing part of the Apple ecosystem is kind of interesting.
0: Although presumably they would have to uh, navigate the relationship that they have with the major phone carriers, but maybe they look at that and say, look, we're Apple, we're, we're going to do what we want.
3: Well, I think so too. And they've certainly navigated a lot of these areas um, uh, before as we continue to see it ongoing as Apple continues to expand their, their business. But for a $3 trillion Company with gosh, almost 400 billion dollars in sales. They're obviously a very large gorilla to be able to make a move like this.
0: From hardware to software, Adobe's first quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, but shares down a little bit this week, in part because Adobe's expecting a hit to its existing business in Russia and Belarus. Jason. This probably isn't going to be the only company we hear this from.
2: No, I would imagine not. I would, I would think geopolitical concerns aside, I mean, to me, Adobe feels like a very easy uh, one to justify owning in today's economy. When you think of everything moving digital, and Adobe's capabilities from content to document management, it's just so powerful. And it's just such a really strong business, particularly in this volatile environment there. So, uh, you know, their earnings calls <laughs> their earnings calls always remind me of Amazon's press releases, earnings releases, in that they just list off this litany of new offerings and services. You just you can't keep track with, with everything that they're doing. It's just, it's just very impressive. So, it, it translates into very strong numbers. Revenue, $4.26 billion. That was up 9% from a year ago and it's actually 17% accounting for an extra week in the quarter a year ago in currency effects. But ultimately, uh, non-GAAP operating income of just under $2 billion and earnings per share of $3.37. Uh, the digital media business continues to just really... As Ron would say, "Fire on all cylinders." Uh, you saw the Creative Cloud and Document Cloud businesses together bring in three point one one billion dollars in revenue. The Document Cloud side of the of the business continues to perform uh, now five hundred sixty two million dollars in revenue for the quarter. Uh, and, and as you noted, you know the the impact from the war in Ukraine it's It's going to be fairly minimal in regard to Adobe's business. It bumps down their annualized recurring revenue by around eighty seven million dollars for the year and will have an expected revenue impact of seventy five million dollars for the full year. So in the context of the entire business it's it's not anything for investors to be concerned about. but like you said, I think that's going to be that's going to be a point we're going to continue to see in earnings calls as long as this conflict plays out
0: Nike's third quarter results were fueled by sales in North America. Shares up a bit this week, even though Nike suspended guidance due to ongoing supply chain issues, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and uncertainty around inflation, Andy.
3: Well, Nike celebrates its 50th birthday this May. So, if I can, well, I guess I am over 50. I was going to say I, <laughs> I looked this good when I was 50. Um, continues to do really well. Revenues were up 5% and up 8%. Chris, on a currency neutral basis, both that beat estimates. Um, their EPS uh, beat estimates as well too, um, up 87 cents um, versus uh, 71 cents for the uh, at 87 cents versus 71 cents for the analyst estimates. That was down a little bit um, from from the the prior quarter. Um, but overall, the Nike brand continues to thrive in, in really positive ways. Nike direct sales were up 15% and 17% if you back out some of the currency effects. The Nike brand digital increased 19% or 22% if you back out some of the, those those currencies with 33% growth You know, in North America. The Nike mobile app, Chris, I found this really interesting, was up 50% and is now larger than Nike.com sales on mobile Devices. The Nike owned digital um, is now more than a quarter of Nike total brand sales. The gross margin increased 100 uh, basis points at 46%. Um, That was mostly direct to Nike Direct's business. They paid 484 million dollars in dividends, Chris, and bought back 1.2 billion dollars worth of stock. So again, the the financial picture of Nike continues to be strong. China continues to be a struggle, Chris. It was down again. It's improving, but it was it was down. Um, Ukraine and Russia, they announced, is only is less than one percent of sales. So that's not a huge impact, and wasn't a wasn't a big part of 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 the business. The guidance for the rest of the year sales up mid to. Mid single digits, gross margins up a little bit. Supply constraints, as you mentioned, continue to be the big challenge that they kind of trying to navigate through this, especially over in China. But overall, a really positive um, estimate beating by their own expectations quarter for Nike.
0: Not a great third quarter for Darden Restaurants. The parent company of Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse lowered guidance after profits came in lower than expected. Fine dining segment was the lone bright spot, but Jason, that is a small part of their business.
2: Yeah, it's a small part. You're right. I mean, it's a bit of a tough start to the year for Darden, but I mean, all things considered, it really wasn't a bad quarter. Um, I think it's just really challenging for a company like this with such a heavy focus on dining in. But here's a fun fact for you. On Valentine's Day, Olive Garden served more than 1 million guests with approximately 35% off-premise sales. sales. So even though this is a company that's very focused on that dine-in population, they're still figuring out ways to get it done. Um, It was interesting, the language in the call management noted it was a quarter of stark contrast. And this was a reference to uh, January and how Omicron hurt traffic there. They saw the trends coming back in February and March, uh, ultimately sales up 41.3% from a year ago uh, to $2.45 billion. That was driven Primarily by same store uh, restaurant sales growth at 38.1%. They did open a, a handful of new stores there, 30, uh, 33 new uh, restaurants. The earnings per share $1.93. That was up considerably from a year ago, but basically flat when you compare it to 2020. Um, as you mentioned, Olive Garden really is the biggest footprint uh, versus something like a fine dining, maybe got just under 900 stores uh, with, with Olive Garden, Longhorn being a relatively distant second, uh, but making up a, a large portion of the base there as well. But they're dealing with all of the challenges that every restaurant out there is dealing with, staffing, inflation, supply chain concerns. You know, It's not the most compelling investment idea, but hats off to management for operating in in a very difficult environment.
0: Guys, we'll see you later in the show. How are companies doing with their operations in Russia? We'll get a report card from Nell Minow after the break. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. By day, Nell Minow is the vice chair of Value Edge Advisors. By night, she is a film critic. So essentially, she's Batman. And she joins me now. Thanks for being here.
4: Thank you. Maybe Catwoman. (laughs) There you go.
0: Um, Before we get to the movie industry, I want to get your thoughts on what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. Value Edge Advisors works with institutional investors to help them engage with the companies in their portfolios. And lately, a lot of public companies have had to make decisions about their operations in Russia, how they communicate their decisions to investors, all that sort of thing. Um, What are you seeing? What have you been observing over the past month as these events unfold?
4: Well, my go-to on this is the amazing uh, updated daily database put together by Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld at Yale, where he's got four categories so investors know which companies have gotten out completely, which have suspended operations, and which are ignoring it. And uh, he's done a great job with that. And that in and of itself has put a lot of pressure on companies, I think more effectively even than the investors have. Uh, it's it's tricky though. I think I like what McDonald's did. Um, they are continuing to pay all of their employees, even though they acted very quickly and shut down their operations there. So you want to be careful about the employees. As for the pharma companies, I think it's important for them and some of the other providers of essential services to be very clear with their investors. We are doing humanitarian work. We are cutting down anything that is not in that category. Uh, but certainly, every company has to respond. And if you want to see a bad response, the worst one I've seen so far has come from Corn Ferry just over the last weekend, which was basically kumbaya. (laughs) They think they said, we're just going to have a lot of empathy. That's not what shareholders want to hear.
0: How likely is it that companies with a global footprint, when this whole situation is resolved, are going to say either we're not going back to Russia or we're going to take our time. It's uh, like, I'm wondering both in terms of the Russian economy, but also in terms of Russia, uh, Russia's attractiveness for companies with global footprints.
4: Definitely. And certainly McDonald's has got a big footprint there and has been very successful there. So that was all the more impressive uh, when they made their announcement, you know, A lot of it depends on how it ends, not when it ends, but how it ends. If it ends with Putin out and a commitment to a new kind of glasnost and more respect for American companies, then I think you will see companies come back. But anybody who's ever gone into business in Russia or in China or in many other countries has always known that there was some kind of a risk.
0: I was thinking of you uh, recently when the news broke about Starbucks, that Kevin Johnson, the CEO, is going to step down in early April. And depending on how you want to interpret what was said, it appears as though the board of directors knew about this a year ago and decided not to have someone in place. They decided to bring back Howard Schultz to be interim CEO. Uh, It's his third go-round if you're scoring at home. And sometime this fall, they expect to have a new CEO. As all of that was playing out, what was your reaction?
4: Well, to go back to Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's the world's leading expert on CEO succession planning, I mean, that is catastrophically bad. Every board has to have two envelopes at all times. One is, what if something happens tomorrow? What if our CEO gets named to be Secretary of State? Uh, what are we going to do? And then the longer term, what are we looking for for the future? How are we cultivating insiders as possible successors? This board has failed terribly uh, and, uh, and and you just cannot keep going back to the same CEO uh, as your safety net. So uh, a very disappointing performance by that board.
0: Let's go to the Academy Awards. Um, the awards are later in the year than normal um, and, uh, Every year, the studios behind the nominees campaign for the awards. Do you think the additional time helped some performances get more attention?
4: I think it did. The studios campaign very hard. They send out gift baskets. They make meet and greets available. But overall, I think it's uh, a mistake uh, because there's just awards exhaustion. We now speak of awards season. We used to just speak of the Oscars. But now we've got this big buildup with the Golden Globes, the Critics' Choice Awards, the SAG Awards, the DGA, the PGA. And so I think everybody is just tired of it all right now. And we're talking about movies that came out three months ago, five months ago, six months ago. So I think I think it has contributed to a lack of interest in the Oscars.
0: Although there is some interest in the broadcast this year because uh, some changes have been made in terms of which awards are going to be presented. Um, I'm baffled at the fact that the award show apparently is not going to be streamed anywhere, which seems like a big mistake for a network that is allegedly attempting to bring in younger viewers, many of whom have cut the cord. Uh, Based on what you've heard, uh, what, what are your expectations for the broadcast this year?
4: I am terribly disappointed, uh, and I know that the industry is as well. They're cutting out of the broadcast so many of the essential awards that we really only get to understand and see uh, uh, at uh, at the Oscars telecast. And so for best editing, you know, we want to see those people. Oh oftentimes those are the most touching acceptance speeches. And uh, I think it's a real industry. Uh, it's an insult to the industry to cut them out. I hope they will not make that mistake again. I can guarantee we'll be hearing jokes about that from Amy Schumer and uh, Wanda Sykes uh, at the beginning of the broadcast.
0: Uh, before we get to the three biggest awards, you've voted for movie awards in the past. Um, What has been your approach? Because every year it seems like you hear about in a given category, uh, sometimes uh, someone's been nominated and they've never won in the past. This is, you know, their fifth nomination, that sort of thing. (laughs) Does that... We're speaking uh, of
4: Leonardo DiCaprio and The Revenant, when he should have won for about four different performances before that.
0: Is that something that factors into the mindset of a voter like you? Or do you try and sort of shut out the past and just say, no, I'm taking this performance against the other performances?
4: Well, the difference between a voter like me and the people who vote for the Oscars is they tend to only look at the movies that are being supported by the studios, whereas in the critics groups, like the ones I vote for, we actually have seen everything. And so I think we're less susceptible to those kinds of concerns. With the Oscars, and we're going to talk about some of the predictions, sometimes they don't give the award for the best acting, they give it for the most acting, And um, so somebody who loses a lot of weight, gains a lot of weight, uh, or, you know, does something very, very big, they will go for that. There's often a lot of sentimentality involved as well. I compare it often to a high school popularity contest. This is the industry voting for their own insiders.
0: All right, let's get to the three biggest awards. And as we do every year, you tell me who you think should win and who you think will win. Uh, Last year in the best actor category, we had a bit of an upset. Many people were expecting Chadwick Boseman to win posthumously. Anthony Mm -hmm. Hopkins won. Uh, Mm -hmm. This year, Will Smith appears to be a heavy uh, favorite for King Richard. Do you think he wins or is there going to be another upset?
4: I would love to see him win. First of all, that's going to be a heck of an acceptance speech. Uh, The movie King Richard was labor of love by uh, Venus and Serena Williams and their sister Aisha about their father And Will Smith gave a totally committed, beautiful performance. We all know that Will Smith, who's got all kinds of energy and charisma, he really tamped that down. He did a great job. I think he should win, and I think he will win.
0: The best actress category is completely stacked. I mean, just Jessica Chastain, Olivia Coleman, Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman, Kristen Stewart. This is such a strong group of actresses. Is the award itself up for grabs, or is there a favorite?
4: I think the favorite looks like from all the preliminary awards, which are leading indicators to use your kind of language, the is looks like Jessica Chastain. And that's a classic example of the most acting, not necessarily the best acting. Also, Jessica Chastain falls into the other category you just mentioned. She's been nominated a lot of times. She certainly has deserved it. This was a passion project for her. She put this movie together. So I, I think she's a very, very good bet. If we're me, I might go with Olivia Coleman, but she just won recently. So let's spread it around.
0: 10 pictures nominated for best picture. Uh, it, it seems, however, like the two strongest contenders are very different films. One is Coda. Uh, one is The Power of the Dog. You've got you know sort of this heartwarming family movie and this picturesque Western. Uh, is there a dark horse or do you think it comes down to one of those two?
4: I think it does come down to one of those two. And I would have said for sure Power of the Dog, which I did not love, but I would have said that that's my bet Uh, until last weekend when the Producers Guild picked Coda. And that's a real that really puts it up at the front again, because that's a very good predictor coda of the 10 films nominated coda is the crowd pleaser coda is the one your grandmother will love it your grandchild will love it everybody will love coda I'm looking for troy Kotsur from coda to make history as the first deaf actor to win an oscar um but i still think power of the dog is a likely win so um that's still where i'm betting if we were up to me i would go for belfast i think
0: all right last thing Please fill in the blank with respect to the Academy Awards. Don't be surprised if...
4: Disney always takes Best Animated. This year, it just might go to the Mitchells versus the Machines.
0: One of the best reasons to be on Twitter is so you can follow Nell Minow. It's movies, it's corporate governance, it's a lot more. Nell, always great talking to you. Enjoy the broadcast. Thank you. Saturday night and the moon is... What picture you see When you're hugging with your baby Last row in the back of the day Well, that's technical And the cinema score
3: I guess I'll... Gotta work next week But that's alright I've got five dollars And it's Saturday night
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Guys, a couple quick things. In keeping with the business of movies, we've got a fun episode of The Motley Fool Money podcast coming on Saturday, where we take a closer look at the streaming wars, bitter rivalries in the entertainment business, and some of the unexpected business and investing lessons from the big screen. So you remember, you can always follow Motley Fool Money wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify. And please leave us a review and include a pitch. As I mentioned last week, post a review of the show on Apple. Pitch us a stock you want to talk about. Pitch us a topic for the show. We love to get ideas. Uh, So go ahead and review and pitch us an idea. Uh, Speaking of pitching stocks, I mentioned earlier in the week I was up in Boston Visiting family. I spoke to a class at Boston College. And I also had the chance to meet up with some of the student leaders of the Boston College Investment Fund. Um, These are students who are helping to manage more than $1 million of the school's endowment. And I got to say, guys, I was so impressed with these students who are learning about investing. They're smart, they're curious. Um, Just want to say thank you to Luke and Jack and Annabelle. Uh, for meeting up over coffee. Go Eagles. Uh, Jason, I know you've had the chance uh, to speak at your alma mater. Um, it, it, it's one of those things that just gives me hope. I walk away from talking <laughs> with students, and I just feel so much more optimistic about the investing future.
2: Oh, I feel, I feel like the world is in way greater hands than when I was in school. There's, there's no question there. Um, it, it is exciting to see that. And and as I'm sure we all see this as well, you, you see this in, in, in our in our kids, you know, our very own kids growing up. It's just it's it's just amazing to see uh, how far things have come along in, in such a short period of time. Uh,
0: last week we told you about Walmart's launch of limited edition ice cream flavors. This week, Pepsi unveiled in collaboration with IHOP. Pepsi Maple Syrup Cola. <laughs> Andy, this is not going to be in stores and it's not going to be sold oh. at IHOP locations, but it it's a social uh, media campaign. There'll be 2000 winners. Uh I maybe if I were more active on things like Instagram or even at all active on it, I don't <laughs> even have an Instagram account. Maybe I would be doing this, but I don't know. They, Pepsi keeps doing this. It must be working for them.
3: Chris, you had me until you mentioned social media because now I <laughs> probably will not get this, uh, I'm s- sad to say, but it does go along with what Pepsi has been been doing more recently, and Pepsi Apple Pie, um, Cracker Jack flavor. I mean, obviously, from a from the business side, it's uh, it's very cheap to I imagine it's very cheap to be able to add these flavors in and and, and maybe use either promotional or drive sale. I mean, Pepsi is a business that you know over the long term probably grows in the four five percent kind of revenue line. So any little thing they can do that drives both revenues and and profits and gets a lot of scale in there, like it can be a very profitable move, but you know, in this case, I think it's all branding, and I got to say, I like maple syrup, so I would be <laughs> interested to give it a give it a show, uh, give it a go, Chris. But it just depends on how sweet it is. I can imagine it being a little too sweet.
0: I feel like the Cracker Jack one might be a little bit better because I can actually imagine eating Cracker Jack and washing it down with the Pepsi. But I don't know. Um, let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Before we get to the radar stocks, Steve. Uh, earlier, we were talking about Darden restaurants. Um, longtime listeners know of your affinity for Olive Garden. Did you happen to partake in the uh, Valentine's Day uh, promotion that uh, Jason had mentioned?
1: I cannot say that I did. And and I will say this, that the pandemic has been a crushing blow for my relationship with Olive Garden. I have not been as often. I have eaten there a, a, a few times, uh, but it's just not the same. I love being in that store. The, the vibe there is really nice. All the servers are great. It's a grand old time. And, and uh, when there's a pandemic flying around, it's a whole lot
0: less fun. All right. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Jason Mosier up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: Well, hey, let's We're talking about flavors. I mean, we've got one of my favorite companies out there, McCormick, ticker MKC. They've got earnings coming up next week on March 29th. Uh, We'll get a better idea of of what this coming year for them is going to look like. We talked a lot about pricing power lately, companies that can exercise it. McCormick seems to be able to do that to a degree. They're calling for uh, sales growth at the midpoint of 5% for the coming year, and they are going to be exercising some price increases there. That would be the, the majority, the driver of that growth. Uh, but they are uh, witnessing tremendous benefits from the recent acquisitions of Cholula and Fona. They've exceeded all their, all their expectations that they've noticed. And, and their focus for now is to, to digest, no pun intended, those deals. But they are always paying attention to new acquisitions. I would not be surprised to see them uh, continue to make acquisitions in order to continue to grow. Uh, but guiding for around $3.20 uh, in earnings per share for the year uh, values these shares today at around 30 times full-year estimates. I don't think that's out of bounds for a dividend aristocrat with a very uh, proven track record. Steve, question about McCormick? Should they make a
1: huge push to check the expiration date on your spices? Uh because I bet I bet you if that was an entire marketing movement, check the expiration date, you'd be like, "Oh my goodness, I have 68 spices that expired <laughs> 10 years ago." It
2: it feels like that could prompt some new sales and I would liken that to something like Netflix kind of clamping down on sharing uh passwords, but but who knows? Maybe they're just trying to, you know, exercise some goodwill to those consumers in the face of those price hikes that are coming, Steve. <laughs> Andy Cross, what are you looking at this week?
3: You know, Chris, the U.S. housing market is one of the most unbalanced spots in just years. So I'm looking at KB Home as part of just overall housing market market, a $3 billion market cap um, company. 65-year-old U.S. home builder focuses in the built-to-order homes, not not uh, building them beforehand, so really ordering them. Focuses on new home buyers, more than 60% of their sales driven from new home buyers. They focus in the West Coast, Southwest, Colorado, Texas, Florida. North Carolina, average selling price about $450,000. So at that end, most almost all the revenues come from purely home building. has 10,000 homes in production. That was up 46% and a backlog valued at $5.7 billion, Chris. But the interesting thing is you have a stock that's priced at five times earnings, three times this year earnings, now less than one times book value. So the valuation looks exceptionally cheap in a housing market. That's just kind of a little disarray yet we have interest rates moving higher. We have concerns about supply constraints and inflation. So will people continue to look to buy new homes as we come out of the the pandemic with these costs increasing, home prices and inflation? Something to watch. So it's a radar stock for me in the market that looks very cheap valuation, but is that a value trap or not? That's what I'm looking at.
0: Steve, question about KB Home? So yes or no. Should
1: uh, investors think about real estate as a regional investment? Should they be thinking about real estate regionally as opposed to nationally? They
3: can, but for a home company like KB Home, not so much. But regional investing from the the real estate side, sure. Yeah, you can do that.
0: What do you want to add to your watch list, Steve?
1: I'll go Spices. Let's do it. (laughs) All
0: right, Andy Cross, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Mindful Money radio show. Shows mixed by Steve Rito. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.